bother to take a moment of silence seems almost trivial in light of the incredible amount of the loss of life that has taken place. Father, over the past 20 years, we've continued to see the ongoing impacts of what took place on September 11, 2001. And Father, right now, we pray for comfort for every family, every home, every friend who was impacted in that. For every person who is still struggling with illness or disease from that. Father, we ask for healing for our country, for our world. We ask that You would pour out Your Holy Spirit. You grab our attention through Your Word this morning. And Father, I pray specifically, I pray, I pray that Your Word would speak directly to my heart. I pray that each of us would have that desire. That we wouldn't walk out of here thinking, that's what somebody else needs to hear from the Bible, but that I would walk out of here saying, that's what I needed to hear from Jesus. Thank you for promising to speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. That evening, they all stood there on the steps. 150 of them. They were shoulder to shoulder. And and you wouldn't expect this group to stand shoulder to shoulder like they were standing. You see, they were from the House of Representatives, and they were from the Senate. They were Republicans, and they were Democrats. And they were standing side by side. And this is what the Speaker of the House had to say 20 years ago on September 11, 2001. Dennis Hostert said, Our prayers and thoughts and words of consolation go out to all those who suffered, who have suffered. But one thing that happens here in this place is when Americans suffer, when people perpetrate acts against this country, we as a Congress and as a government stand united and we stand together. Isn't that awesome to live in a country that when people are suffering, we always stand together? Senators and House members, Democrats and Republicans will stand shoulder to shoulder to fight this evil that has been perpetrated on this nation. We will stand together to make sure that those who have brought forth this evil deed will pay the price. We will stand with the president. We will stand with this government. And we will stand as Americans together through this time. I like that speech. How about you? And then there was a moment of silence and, and everybody was, was quiet. And then after the moment of the silence, the, the leaders of Congress began to, to walk away. But suddenly, some of the other members of Congress began to sing. And they spontaneously broke out in singing, God bless America, land that I love, stand beside her and guide her. Isn't that what we want to pray for today? Isn't that what we desire in our hearts is that God would indeed bless America, the land that we love, that He would stand beside her, that He would guide her. And you know, it's fascinating to see what that moment did for our society. Leading up to September 11, 2001, do you know Uh, some polls were taken about the percentage of Americans that said America was on the right track. Before September 11, in June of 2011, this poll was given. 43% of all Americans said, we're on the right track. Not so good, huh? 43% of America. That same poll was taken after the 9-11 attacks, 
and 72%, a whopping 72% of Americans said, we're headed in the right direction. You know how many say we're headed in the right direction today? 29% using the same poll in 2021. 29%. Our president's uh, ratings went through the roof to the highest level that was ever seen by an American president up to that point. He had a 90% approval rating. It's interesting that before 9-11, 34% of Americans said the nation was united and in agreement about the most important values. But uh, versus 62% that said it was divided. After that, in November of 2001, the poll was given and 74%, it went from 34% to 74% said the nation was in agreement and in unity. Anybody want to guess what the same poll found out about the United States of America in 2021? 11% today said that we are in agreement and in unity. In the days leading up after the September 11, 2001 attacks, both liberals and conservatives were flying American flags from their, their antennas on their cars. From their houses, everybody was proud to be an American. A Republican president spoke kindly and reassuringly at a mosque. Petula Dvorak reports. Jim Beckerman wrote an article where he asked this question that I found a number of articles are, are asking right now because we're living in a time where Americans are suffering. And he says this, 9-11 brought a sense of national unity. Why has the pandemic been marred by division? 9-11, he writes, volunteers from the South and the Midwest rushed in search, in to search the rubble at Ground Zero. People from all parts of the country gave blood. There were records amounts of donations of blood. School children in reddest Texas wrote letters to kids in bluest New York. And it had only been a year since we even knew what red and blue meant. Because those differentiations had just come about during the Bush-Gore case. Compare that, he goes on to say, with COVID, depending on your political camp, the enemy is the last president or the current president or the people who won't take the vaccines or the people who insist we all take vaccines. Or that woman wearing a mask. Or the woman who yells at that woman who's not wearing a mask. America, America. Land that I love. May God bless America. May God bless His church to stand together in times like these. Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 6 where we find Jesus facing a crisis of conflict. Luke chapter 6 in verse 12, Jesus has, has just uh, done a healing that, that upset the religious leaders because it was done on the Sabbath. And he was demonstrating that the Sabbath is all about doing good for people. Verse 11 says, but they were, uh, Luke chapter 6 says, but they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. How can we get rid of this Jesus character? Verse 12, now it came to pass, when, the, when that's going on in those days, that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. 
wow, that makes me think about my prayer life. Because Jesus, how many sins did he ever commit? He was connected with the Father throughout eternity, with the Holy Spirit throughout eternity. And yet he came in human flesh. And he grew, it says in Luke, in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Does, does prayer change God? Now, granted, it changes the opportunities, the, the ability that God and the great controversy has enabled himself to work based upon our invitation. What's the biggest change that is designed in prayer? Why does God want us to commune with him? Prayer changes who? Me. As I pray, I am transformed. And I think that, and I'm, I, I'm thinking about why was Jesus wrestling in prayer? And I think those two things are going on. One, he's desperate to see God act in a coming situation and in the pressure that he's feeling. But also, I believe he's wrestling with something that God is wanting him to do because it seemed crazy. It seemed like it made no sense at all. Look at what Jesus does. Verse 13. And when it was day, after all night in prayer, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. He's praying all night before choosing the twelve apostles. Now, why is he doing that? Look at the twelve apostles. Read this list. And when it was, verse 14, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, who another gospel tells us were sons of thunder, I mean, so far, you already know some craziness going on here. Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Altheus, Simon called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who, has, who also became a traitor. <laughs> this mixed bag of diverse people God is calling together to be with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus desperately needs the Holy Spirit to be there for this to work. Not just because there's a traitor in the camp who's going to be stealing from him throughout his three years of ministry. Not just because Judas is going to betray him in the end. But notice what verse 15 highlighted. Matthew. What was Matthew's profession? Luke doesn't tell us. Luke is generous to Matthew. But when Matthew's telling this same thing and he tells and he lists them, he's like, look, Matthew, the tax collector. That's who I was. Okay, so who were the tax collectors? Who did they work for? Who did they collect taxes for? For the Romans. The biggest government, the most controlling government in the world, who had come with their oppressive, controlling power and had come to the Jews and had forced them that a Roman soldier could tell you, hey, carry my baggage for a mile. And you had to carry it for a mile if he asked you to. This type of government. And this guy has the audacity to say, I'm going to collect taxes for them. Apparently, Matthew's in favor of big taxes, of lots of taxes, of big government. And was he concerned with the nation of Israel, with the Jews? Apparently not. Because he's collecting taxes for the Romans. So you might call Matthew... A globalist and not a nationalist. Now notice what happens right after this though, okay? So, so we have somebody who believes in, in big government, in taxes, who's a globalist. Jesus says, come, follow me. 
But notice what comes next. This is crazy. It says, Simon called the zealot. Do you know who the zealots were? So back in 6 AD, Quirinius, a Roman governor, had, had ordered for there to be a census of the Jews, of the Roman world, I assume. But specifically, when this came on the Jews, a census was to number the population, which the controlling government power, they're numbering their people so that they can figure out how to tax them, so that they can figure out what they can milk out of them. It's more of their oppressive actions. And it was out of that that this group rose up, and they were called the Zealots because they hated the Romans. They hated them so much that they actually became known as the Dagger Men. Why were they called the Dagger Men? Because they believed in bearing arms. <laughs> and you could expect to find that a zealot would have in his robe a dagger. <laughs> They were called the Daggermen because they were known as the assassins who, if they had the chance and they saw a Roman, they would love to stab him and run away. Because that's what they thought needed to happen. Were they concerned about the nation of Israel? Extremely. That's, that's, that's their whole mindset. We want our nation to be established. They're nationalists, not globalists. Right? But not only that, if you think about it, were they in favor of taxes? Were they in favor of big government controlling them? They said, no, let's, let's do whatever it takes to rebel against this big government. Are you seeing what's happening in Jesus' own disciples? Jesus chooses two people on the opposite end of the political spectrum. It's so clear from the Bible. He's choosing somebody who doesn't believe in big government, who carries arms, who would rebel against any chafing on his freedom. And he's also choosing this globalist who believes in taxes and who's betraying this nation of Israel. He says, come, follow me. And for a while, we could question Jesus' judgment. Did they get along very well in the Gospels? What is it that they're always arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest? Is it, is it Judas? Because he's a good financier. Or, or maybe Peter because he can speak. with. He could lead us. Just listen to his speeches. Or maybe Simon. We just need somebody who could, Simon the Zealot, he could lead us in such a way that we could conquer the Romans. Heaven forbid that anybody would think Matthew could be anywhere on the top of that list of disciples. This is the, the type of arguments that they're having amongst themselves all the way up to Luke chapter 22 tells us in the upper room, just before Jesus washes their feet, they're arguing and disputing about which one's going to be the greatest. And he goes on to say in Luke 22, that's the way the world's governments work. They lord it over people. They, they exercise their authority, but it's not to be that way among you because I'm among you as one who serves. And he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. This is kingdom. It's not about being a zealot. It's not about being a tax collector. Because those things will never solve the problems on this planet. 
And, and, and there's one thing that can unite people who have these differing opinions. It, it's not to argue about those opinions. But there is one thing that unites, and that is following Jesus. Following Jesus. Being disciples of Jesus. They could stay together in camp. Can you imagine that first night when, when they're going to camp? And, and everybody has to be like, oh, wow, this is going to be exciting. As the 12 disciples lay down um, during the middle of the night, we're going to wake up in the morning and Matthew, <laughs> he's going to be stabbed. And Simon is going to be missing because he will have had his opportunity to, to do away with the tax collector. This is the type of expectation that people might have seen within this own group of disciples. And yet Jesus says, bring them all to me. Bring them all to me. Well, what would you say united this country September 11 of 2001? What would you say united us? What, what was it that united us? An enemy? A common enemy. A tragedy. Yeah, so we all had an enemy over there. A bad guy that we could all think about. Well, except for that sometimes we mistakenly thought he was right here with us. And so we began to see hate crimes rising up against Arab Americans and even those who wore turbans who happened to be Sikh and not even Muslim because of the ignorance that hatred creates. But what else was going on? Maybe there was some hatred. Maybe there was some fear. These things were driving us together in 2001. And I hope that there was a lot of other altruistic things and we see that happening. An example of that is an actor by the name of Steve Buscemi. I don't even know how to say his name. But he stopped his acting. He went to, to the scene of what was taking place. And I actually learned this on, on your Facebook page. <laughs> uh, he, he went there and he put on his... Did you say what's Facebook? <laughs> All right. Somebody tell, tell Leonard about it later. <laughs> Bernie's Facebook, he posted about this. Anyway, so he had operated in the New York Fire Department for 18 years, I think it was, or something like that. And he ended up uh, leaving and going into his acting career. But when he saw what happened on September 11, he left that and he went and he served, just picking up buckets of, of debris to help his old fire department crew out, um, just to serve day in and day out. A guy who didn't need to do that. There are so many other stories of people running up when everybody else is running down to save some lives. But the reality is, as a nation, that love has not been the focal point of what is uniting us, but instead we have fear and we have hatred. And these things never work to solve our problems. Because the disciples, when they went through a crisis, when, when one of those disciples who they didn't expect, they thought it was a good one, when he came and he betrayed Jesus... And Jesus is hauled off. What happens to all the disciples? They scatter. They run in every direction. They're not united then. The cross happens, the most horrific thing possible for the disciples. And they don't understand what's going on. There is their Savior on the cross. How could this be happening? He's the Messiah. Why? And so you find on Sunday that the disciples, they're united. But they're not united by the love of God. Look at John chapter 20 and verse 19. John chapter 20 
In verse 19, it says, Then the same day at evening, this is Sunday evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. The doors are shut. They're all assembled together. Why are they there? They have a common enemy who's out to get them. They're afraid. And so they're there with doors barred. They're looking out how to protect themselves in the upper room. And that has driven them together. And Jesus appears to them in the midst of that. Friends, no matter how wrapped up we get in everything that's going on around us right now, I find Jesus keeps showing up. He keeps reminding me, you're going down the wrong track. That's not what matters. And Friends, like I'm saying, this message is for me. I'm not here to point fingers, but I hope that you'll walk away saying, what did God say to me today? Jesus appeared and stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace be with you. (laughs) Peace. And suddenly, everything begins to change for the disciples. They realize that that their, their Savior has been resurrected, that He has conquered death through laying down His life, that His kingdom has been established through self-sacrificing love, that it's an upside-down kingdom. It's different than either Matthew or Simon were thinking, that it's way better than that. It's about a kingdom of self-sacrificing love. And so you get to Acts. Look at how Luke records in Acts. He's still reminding us of who Simon is after Jesus ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1. They return to the upper room. In verse 13, it says this, And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, and James, the son of Altheus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. He's still distinguished by that life that he used to live. But he's still there together with everybody in the upper room. And now look at the change. We're not seeing fear anymore, but look at what they're doing together. Verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. With one accord, with one-mindedness. They pressed together in prayer. They're finally learning what Jesus' kingdom is all about. With the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They're there together now because they know that Jesus is risen from the dead. They know that he is ascended on high. They know that he is king of kings. And we find that in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, they're all together on the day of Pentecost in one place with one mind. This, this word in Greek is used again and again here in the first few chapters of Acts to tell us they were together. They were with one mind. They were focused on togetherness, on unity, because they had grown to love each other by what they saw Jesus do on the cross. You know, when you go through something intense, you become close friends. I've, I've learned this in reading some stories about 9-11. There was an individual who, let's see if I can find his name for you here really fast. Sylvian Ramzadar, Zundar, is of Indian descent, who was on the 78th floor when that plane came crashing in. To give you an idea, in these floors there was about 16 people who survived. The 78th floor, the, it came crashing in, and, and in that explosion, 
he was hit by a piece of shrapnel from the wing of one of the airplanes and it was embedded in his chest and he began to bleed profusely. And so he began to try to get down from the 78th floor. He'd gone down about 13 floors to the 65th floor. When Sylvian Ramsador, uh, uh, when, when Doug Brown came with a, a colleague and began to descend and found him leaning up against the wall in the stairwell. And rather than rushing down to make sure he could save his own life, the two of them worked to make sure that Sylvian could make their way down. And they were able to exit the building just minutes before it collapsed. And this is what Sylvian had to say. Because of 9-11, our lives have become intertwined. They'll be intertwined forever, says Ramsardun. I'll always be thankful for what they did for me. They've been friends through the years, through the past 20 years. He invited Doug to come to his wedding. They've had family get-togethers. They've become like family because of this shared experience. And that has something that binds us close together. Crisis has a way, when we go through it together, of leading us to a unity that is greater than we could have had without it. You look in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit is poured out, you get this idea that, that God is passionate for this diversity to just spread and multiply. These, this, this ragtag bunch of disciples are now in one mind, but God says, that's not enough for me. The good news is enough to, to give that mindset to a whole lot more people. <laughs> and it goes on to tell us that people are asking, why is this happening? In verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. So, so both those who are part of our nation and those foreigners who are joining our nation, they're all hearing in their own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so Peter goes on to explain to them, and 3,000 of those people are baptized. And at the end of that, what are we told? Look down at verse 44. Now all of them believed, were together, and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord, with one mind. These people from, from all over the world, every, all these different nations, they're all united together with one accord. In the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And again and again and again, you find the emphasizing in Acts, they were with one mind, they were all together. And then you find Paul come and he writes in Galatians chapter 3, he has the audacity to write, he says, there is no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. Hang on a second, Paul. Are you saying that there's no longer actually women and there's no longer actually men? No longer actually Jews and no longer actually Gre Greeks? He's talking about a unity that comes, as he goes on to say, for they are all one in Christ. They become united with something bigger, the grand and glorious picture of who Jesus is. He goes on to describe the same thing in Colossians 3, chapter, verses 10 and 11. 
And he goes on to say, add to the list. He says the Jews and the Greeks, the free and the slave, but he adds to the, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Believing in Jesus does not change that reality. But it changes how I treat you, even though that's the reality of what has been your experience in life. The reality of what you may have believed in your life. And he goes on to say why. He says, though they're barbarians, he says, we are now all one because Christ has become all in all. You wonder, I wonder, why is it hard to get along with fellow Christians? That's because Jesus hasn't become all in all to me. I need Jesus to be everything. And then it doesn't matter what it might be that you believe that's different from what I believe, provided that we're united in Jesus. We have a higher calling. We can, we can have differences of opinion about politics. We can have differences of opinion about the current pandemic and situation in our nation. But that doesn't change that we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And that is based upon the Word of God and that we're going to live by the Word of God. So I can love you. We can be brothers and sisters. Even if you have a completely different picture of the other things that are down here. Because Jesus is becoming all and all to us. And this is absolutely essential because this is where we are destined for. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, we pick up the final conclusion of this good news going to the whole world. And we find Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, John looks and he says this, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one can number. There's good news. There's room for you in that number, isn't there? I think everybody fell asleep. Is there room for you in a great multitude which no one can number? (laughs) Hallelujah. Somebody should be saying praise the Lord right now. There's room for you in heaven. A great multitude which no one could number And notice this, of all nations, he's not okay with just staying there, of all tribes and peoples and tongues. He's like, this group is so diverse. It's it's from every different group. And he's not saying they all look the same now. They all act the same. No, but they're able to live together in unity. Why? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And notice the focus that drives them together. They're crying out with a loud voice, a united loud voice, saying, salvation belongs to us. Oh, sing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus has become everything to us and that's why we can be here together. That's why we can love each other. We've been healed to the core of our being. And notice, down further, uh, the elder comes to John and says, who are these people that are arrayed in white robes? Exactly who are they? And John says, you're asking me? You're the one before the throne who's bowing. Why are you asking me? You know. Look at uh, verse 15, or verse 14. I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Robes representing character having been purified their hearts have been set on fire by a love that knew no boundaries and chasing after them a love that said even though i could save myself right now on this cross i will not i will experience god forsakenness and all of your sin for you so that by looking your sin can be taken away 
Our robes are made white by the blood of the Lamb. For those two who made it down out of the tower, the injured one had blood all over him. But I noticed in the pictures, the other one's frantically calling for help on his phone. But he's also got blood down his shirt. They were united by the blood. In the reality, in the end, we will be united by the reality of God's self-sacrificing love. And we're called to tell the world how good this news is. Look at Revelation chapter 14. We've been looking at the three angels' messages. We're just going to look at the first verse and the last verse of the three angels' messages. Look at how it's introduced. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. The gospel is what? Good news, not good advice. The good news about what Jesus has accomplished for you to preach to those who dwell on the earth. To, to who? To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Over and over in the book of Revelation, God is revealing that it's every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. We have no right to count anybody out just because of what they believe or where they were born or what they look like. Jesus wants everybody to be there with him before the throne. That's good news, I think. So what will those final people look like? Let's look at the closing verse. How do, uh, of the three angels' messages, how are they united in that moment? How do they go through this mark of the beast crisis? How do they experience this coercive power, this religious political power that forces them to worship in a certain way? Look at verse 12. Here is the patience or the the endurance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Friends, what unites us is Jesus. Knowing who He is, His faithfulness to us, and responding in faith and belief towards Him. And allowing that to lead us to keeping His commandments. And, and how do we navigate when the government becomes oppressive? We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We stand on His commandments. We don't go off like Simon the Zealot and figure out how to solve it ourselves. We say, what does the Bible say for us to do in this situation? Because that's the only answer. That's the only way that we can stay united as a church is to say, what does God say about this situation? And if He doesn't speak to it, then maybe it's not something that I can solve from the Bible and maybe I don't need to be mistreating the people who believe differently from what I believe. Not that I should ever mistreat anybody. So what are God's commandments? We're not going to go into detail of it, but look at what Jesus tells them in closing. The last verse we'll look at here in the upper room. John chapter 13. We started off our worship service with this. Jesus tells them that key that is would heal them and bring them the unity that they so desperately needed. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. There's a new commandment I give to you. This is brand new. Why? That you love one another. Is that brand new? Does the Bible say to love one another? Sure it does. But notice the qualification. As I have loved you. I've now come down and, and we're in this together. You know that I walked among you. You saw how I, how I loved a tax collector of all people, that, that, that globalist, that big government tax collecting person. And you saw how I loved Simon the Zealot, that nationalist, that, that person who was convinced that, that fighting was the answer. And 
I pulled them both together. You saw how I lay down my life for everyone. And so go and love like I have loved. That's the new commandment, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, we have a crucial mission as a church. And the most important thing for us is how we love each other. That we are relationally faithful to each other. Because what does it say? They will know that you're my disciples. They're going to be drawn to me as they see that love. And they say, what could I do to become a part of that community? How could I come together with those people? Because that is attractive. And friends, I'm not here to tell you that because that's the reality in my heart. But I'm here to tell you because that's what we so desperately need as a church family. Because this community needs to see that people can be united even though they're on opposite spectrums in what they believe politically. That they can come together when Christ becomes all in all. United by the blood of the Lamb. So on the 84th floor that morning, September 11, there was an executive working. And when he found out about what had taken place with the first tower, when it had been hit by the airplane, he, he decided that he was going to get out of there. But in the process, they ended up telling him, no, you needed to stay there. And he had been a volunteer fire marshal for his floor. So he was going around trying to encourage people. He went over to the window, and this lady was looking out the window. He chose not to look at the other tower because of the horrific things that were happening over there. But she was traumatized by it, and so he was trying to counsel her, take her over to the elevator or the the bathroom, and right as he took her there, there was an explosion. As suddenly a plane had hit their tower on the 84th floor. People say that above the 80th floor, in that tower, there were four people who survived. And he was the, the fire marshal for... For them, and so he, he's running around. He gets his flashlight, and he he begins to, to gather the people that he could. And he had ten people with him. And he said, "I had the choice to lead them with my flashlight down a stairwell, and there were three to choose from. There was stairwell A, there was stairwell B, and there was stairwell C. And he was headed towards either B or C when he said it was like something pushed him in the arm, and he turned towards stairwell A, and he began to go down stairwell A. Now here's the thing: nobody survived that came down stairwell B." Or C. And so he begins to go down stairwell A, leading these down with his flashlight, leading them down through through this stairway. And as, as they're going down, he goes down one floor, two floors, three floors. And he gets down to the 81st floor when a lady's coming up the stairwell. And, and she's coming up. She says, there's debris down there. There's fire down there. That's not going to work. We've got to go up. Let's go up to the roof and the helicopters will save us. And so... He doesn't even get to be the leader of the situation. Immediately, everybody's debating and talking about where should we go and how do we save ourselves. And in the midst of everybody talking about how to save themselves, he heard something on the 81st floor. He heard a scream from across the building. And he turned and began to venture into the 81st floor, wondering who it was that was crying out for help. Everybody else who stayed there in the stairwell arguing about how to save themselves ended up going up, and not one of them survived. He goes into the the building, and and as he's looking around trying to figure out what's going on, I need to back up in the story because Stanley had gone to work that morning. Now, Stanley was from Guyana, I believe of, of Indian descent or 
something like that as well. He'd gone in as an executive, and, and he worked on this floor, and, and he didn't know anything about, did I say the name of the first person? I didn't say, say his name yet, did I? What was his name, Steve? You were at first service. Brian Clark, thank you, who was on the 84th floor. You can find their, their stories really easily online. Um, so he, he, he had never heard of Brian Clark, but he was there and he saw that the other, he, he knew that there was an explosion from the other tower. He'd seen the, the fireballs come around and he had exited his office, gone all the way down. He'd gotten all the way down to the ground floor. He was headed out the door when the security guard said, hang on. It's dangerous out there. Debris is falling. You need to go back up. This tower has been secured. And so he goes back, gets in the elevator, goes all the way back up, and he's going into his office. And as he goes to sit down in his office, his phone is ringing. And he picks up the phone, and there's a lady there saying, you've got, Stanley, you've got to get down. You've got to get out of there. He's like, why? What's happening? What's going on? And they're, just as they're about to have this conversation, he turns and looks out his window and sees a gigantic airliner heading straight towards him. And it, as it impacted the 81st, it hit right around the 81st floor. The wing was right in the 81st floor. He said, all I said in that moment was, Lord, I can't do this. You take over. I can't do it. And he dove under his desk. He said after the explosion, he began to crawl out and no other deaths were left standing on the 81st floor. And he began to cry out, Lord, I don't want to die. Please send somebody, anybody to help me. But he was momentarily deafened by the explosion. It was, his hearing did return. He's crawling across the room trying to find his way out when suddenly he runs up against the wall and debris begins to fall around him and he's not able to get past this impenetrable wall. He ends up trying to punch a hole through the wall and he eventually gets a hole big enough for him to be able to see through. And all of a sudden, he sees something. <laughs> he sees a little light bouncing through, <laughs> coming through. He can't hear who's coming. He doesn't know what's happening. But Brian Clark is looking. Is there somebody I can save out there? Is there somebody who needs my help? He's coming through the building and he keeps screaming and finally that light comes in and shines through his little hole. And, and Brian Clark says, I, I saw him through his hole there and so I jumped up on a desk and I found out that the wall had a gap at the top and I was able to to look over and I, I began to tell him you've got to jump over apparently his hearing was returning by now you've got to jump over this wall he said so he tried multiple times until finally I was able to just grab him under his armpits and begin to drag him over the wall and as he finally got him over the wall they collapsed on the other side and Stanley said I ran I went straight over to him and I kissed him in the neck and he said, this man who I had never met jumped up, began to brush his suit off and said, well, hi, I'm Brian Clark. And Stanley said, we're going to be brothers for life. And Brian Clark said, well, I don't have any siblings. I don't have any brothers. That sounds good. Let's be brothers. And you see Stanley climbing up that wall had been poked by a drywall screw and his hand was bleeding. And somehow Brian Clark had experienced an injury on his hand on the way down through the stairwell. And Stanley says this, Brian took my hand, my right hand, and he held out his left hand, and he rubbed them together. <laughs> I'm not recommending that you do this, by the way. He rubbed their hands together, and he said, from today 
you're my blood brother. <laughs> I just met. One's from Canada. One grew up in Guyana. <laughs> and they're brothers. United in the midst of a conflict by self-sacrificing love. Sealed with blood. So they began to go back together. They got to stairwell A. The others had gone up, but as they looked, they said, let's try to go down. And as they went down, they didn't realize how soon the building was going to collapse. They even phoned home partway down and said, you know, we're okay. We're going to be fine. And then they, they kept on going down. They were, thought it was odd how few people there were. And finally, they walked out of the building. And then the guard said, you just need to run because there's debris falling. And so they began to, to run. And, and within two blocks, they looked back and that tower was falling down less than four minutes after they walked out of the building. And they've been friends ever since. And you can find them. They've been brothers. They've been talking together for a year, for 20 years now. They were sealed together in brotherhood in the midst of a crisis by self-sacrificing love. And friends, I want to be your brother. I want you to be my brother and my sister. I want for everybody around you to be your brother and sister. And I want us to look at the world out there. And there are people out there who need to know that there is a love that is greater than all the hysteria and division among us in this country right now. There is hope when Jesus becomes all in all. That's what we're called to. To fight for unity. To fight for love to the extent of laying down our lives for others. So we remember September 11. May it be with a desire to extend the type of love and service that can unite this nation. And you know, there's another guy by the name of Jay Winnick who's done exactly that. He lost his brother Glenn in the tower, in one of the towers. And since then, he started an organization that every uh, September 11 organizes Americans around the United States to do service. Acts of kindness. And now there's about 30 million Americans every September 11 who get together to do acts of service, whether it's feeding the homeless or doing some self-sacrificing act, showing self-sacrificing love. It's the biggest day for service in this country. Did you know that? September 11. The most people serve on this day out of any day of the entire year. And God's calling us to love like we've been loved so that the world can know that he sent Jesus. Lord, help us to recognize the infinite love, the self-sacrificing love that you have for us. Help me to see it more clearly every day as I open my Bible, as I take time in prayer. Lord, help me to wrestle on my knees until I truly love the people around me my own church family, and the world around me. Oh God, please, would you change our hearts? Our nation needs it so desperately. Our world needs it so desperately. Father, may we learn through this awful tragedy that took place 20 years ago that there is an answer to put an end to all evil. And it's not hatred and it's not fear, but it is love. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.